Hey, good morning, Harvest. It's good to be with you again. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and go to the book of Exodus as we continue in this series through the book of Exodus. This morning, we're going to be unpacking the first 21 verses in Exodus chapter 15. So grab your Bibles, get to Exodus chapter 15. You know, as you're turning there, I have a house full of girls, all daughters. And so one of the things when we watch movies is, is we're probably not going to watch Rambo or Terminator, but we will watch musicals. And whether it's La La Land or The Greatest Showman or, or Mary Poppins, I mean, my, my kids love musicals, movies. And, and I, don't tell any of my, my guy friends, I kind of dig them too, but there's something I find weird about a musical, right? Because when you're watching a musical and stuff's going on and people are doing stuff and everything's normal, then all of a sudden, ah, they bust out into song, like in the middle of nowhere, and it just feels weird. And, and yet here we have in Exodus 15, we, we have, have God do a, a hugely miraculous thing. The people are saved, set free completely. And it's like the camera zooms in on Moses and Moses begins to lead the people in a song. It's, it's actually one of the weird things that we do at church, if you think about it. Like, like we can do so many things in, in church to try to take away the, the unnecessary barriers for people who are coming in who, who don't have a church background and we want to make things comfortable for them. And so we take away all the stuff that doesn't don't really need to do. It's not like it's a biblical thing. So let's, let's take that out. But, but there's something we still do because God's word calls us to do this. That's actually weird. You don't do it a lot of other places in culture. And that's everybody together sing. People, people from, from different ages, people from different uh, uh, stages of life, people from, from different walks of life, and we all stand together and all sing the same songs together. And if you're rolling in from the outside, not really part of church culture, I gotta tell you, it's weird. But we see it all over Scripture. Over and over again, God moves, God saves, and people respond in singing. Here in Exodus we have this song being, being led by Moses and then also by Miriam. In, in other places throughout scripture, you see other people singing, whether it's Deborah or, or Barak or, or David or Hannah, not to mention the 150 Psalms. Then you get into the New Testament and, and you see all these songs and doxologies in the New Testament. In fact, here's something, over 50 times in scripture, we're commanded to sing. 50 times. How, how weird is that? 50 commandments saying, sing to the Lord. I mean, of all the commandments in scripture, that, that's one of the weirdest to me. Like, like I can get, hey, don't murder. Yeah, I get that one. Hey, hey, don't sleep with someone else's spouse for sure. Hey, don't take someone else's stuff. Got it. But sing. That the God would command us to sing. Like, why is that? And what we're learning as we walk through the book of Exodus together is that everything God does, God does for his glory. And, and if it's for his glory, it's going to be for our good and our joy. So, so if he's commanding us to sing, it's for our joy. Ultimately for his glory. It's for our joy. I mean, just remove the spiritual for a second. Just the physiological. Scientists know this, that, that when we sing, it, it releases endorphins into our system. It, it relieves stress. It brings feelings of peace and joy. Even if you're the, the worst singer, there's something in us. So the way that God created us, that, that singing does something in our bodies and in our minds. And so God calls us to sing, to, to make a joyful noise. 
I do like that verse because sometimes my singing more is like a noise, but it's, it's joyful. And, and so when God calls us to sing, it's for his glory, but also for our joy. And so, so when we sing songs that are truthful, that are biblical, and, and our emotions are engaged in that, as we, as we refocus our hearts on Christ, listen, there's something in our soul that brings rest. It lets us just breathe. I think the fact that God calls us to sing, and listen, I love it in scripture, God sings too, but the reason God calls us to sing, it, it reveals something about the, the nature and the character of God, that, that God is a God of joy. As we jump into the text this morning together, let, let, let me give you a, a good working definition of worship. This doesn't fully encapsulate worship, but it's something when you think about worshiping and about singing, something to think about, and here's what it is. It's our response to who God is and what God has done. I mean, that, that's really what worship is. It's, it's us responding when we see who God is in all his majesty and glory and holiness and perfection. When we see who he is and when we see what he's done. So, so God is, God moves, we respond. That's worship. Here in Exodus 15, they, they've just been set free. And, and they, they could have been set free. They could have crossed through the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They escape through the Red Sea. The, God closes the water up on Pharaoh and his army to set them free. And in that moment, they could high five each other. I mean, they, they could throw a party. I mean, they, they've been slaves for their entire lives. They could have just said, hey, let's take two days off and celebrate that way. But their first response is to sing, is to worship. Their hearts are focusing in on what God has done, on the faithfulness that God's shown and their hearts are stirred and they worship. In fact, I've heard someone say it this way, that this is what worship is, that, that when we write songs and sing songs, it's a way of pulling out what's inside. So, so Exodus chapter 15 here, this song that's, that's being spilled out of Moses, it's just coming from his heart. It's coming from the people's hearts. It's like, this has filled me up and now it's coming out in song. <coughs> here's what I want us to get for this morning as we jump into the text. And, and if you forget everything else this morning, don't, don't miss this. I, I want us to see how in the midst of our greatest moments of suffering or hardship or fear or anxiety or trials, in those moments of, of, of just even numbness and apathy, that in those moments, listen, worship can reorient our hearts. Worship can reorient our hearts to see the character and the promises of God. And God at times will take the most difficult circumstances and the difficult suffering and he's going to turn those into the greatest fuel for our songs of praise and worship for him. In fact, here, here's what we've seen so far as we've been tracking through the book of Exodus. We know this for a fact, that there is a very real battle going on in the world. There are two kingdoms at war. And we're not strong enough to be able to defeat the kingdom that's against us. We're not strong enough to defeat the evil one alone. We, we need a warrior who will fight for us to redeem us, to win us back. And God does that for the people of Israel. And they respond this way. If you've got your Bibles open, look at what, what God's word says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, then Moses... And the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, so they've just been set free. The enemy has been taken care of. They sing this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Another word, there would be a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. If you're taking notes, here's our, our first point this morning. It's this, our warrior God saves his people. Our warrior God saves his people. And you, you notice even as we start this song here, this is not a soft, wimpy song. As we go through the song, you're going to notice it's filled with carnage. Right? I mean, right away in verse 3, what's it say? It says that the Lord is a man of war. He's a warrior. The Lord is his name. It goes on in this passage. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. So what's he saying? He's saying that Pharaoh and his chariots, they come after him and it's his, his chosen officer. So Pharaoh on these fighting machines with his SEAL team, all right? This is Delta Force coming in after them. It's the best the enemy has to offer. And what does God do? God casts them into the sea. Look at verse six and seven. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury and it consumes them like stubble. It's a song saying, God, you have a fury about you and you consume the enemy. In fact, even later on in this song, the, even the, the women jump in on this. The ladies choir gets involved. Verse 20, Miriam, she's a, a prophetess. She takes a tambourine in her hand. She starts singing as well. And she starts singing, as the deer pants for the water. No, she doesn't. She doesn't sing that at all. Listen to what she sings. Look at verse 21. And Miriam sang to them. She's leading this choir saying, sing to the Lord for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. It's a song of war. I mean, there's so many things you can say about who God is, about the attributes of God. I mean, he's called our king. He's called our, our father. He's called a shepherd. He's called a husband. The, there are these other images, though, that, and, and they emphasize his tenderness and his compassion. But listen, we need those images. We need those names. We, we need that character of God. But we also need this one. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. He told them in Exodus 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you. You just need to be still. I'm going to fight for you. And as Pharaoh's army comes in to attack, what's God do? He gets in between Pharaoh's army and his people. And this cloud of smoke and cloud of fire representing God's very uh, manifest presence gets in between. It's an act of war. He's saying, no, 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 you don't get my people. You're going to need to go through me. And he's saying to his people, I'm taking this fight. Stand back, I got this. I'm, I'm protecting my people against the oppressor. And he's basically saying in that moment, I got the Egyptians, let me take them. And, and this song is a song of victory, celebrating a strong God who saves. Now, now in God's fury, in God's wrath, in God's victory, it's not a God who flies off the handle. He, he doesn't lose his temper. You got to think how patient God has been with Egypt. I mean, Israel's been in slavery for over 400 years. He sent 10 plagues to warn them. 
Moses and the people just praise God, though, for him pouring out his wrath on their enemies. They, they praise God for, for his righteous and divine judgment that he poured out. Why? Because of his great love for his people. And, and Israel worshiped the Lord as a warrior. Why? Because the fierceness of God is good news to powerless people. The fierceness of God is good news to powerless people. Listen, if you're listening this morning and, and you've been in that place of powerlessness, where you've been oppressed, you've been abused, you've been wounded, you, you've been helpless. You want to know that God is a God who is holy, who is righteous, who is perfect in justice. And, and this just and righteous fury of, a, of an all-powerful, all-holy God against evil is good news for us because here's what it means. It means that evil doesn't get the last word that evil won't win the day. Now, so often though, in, in church, we, we would prefer more of a passive old grandpa image kind of a God where, where God's just super nice. He always has a Werther's in his pocket for us. And we, we like to talk about the attributes of, of God's love, of his grace, of his kindness, of his, his goodness. And we want to skip past these sections of God's wrath and his fury that, that God would be called a warrior. And yet, yet, listen, at the same time, when we look at our world and we see the injustice in our world, I mean, just, just watch the news just one night and you see things where you want to scream out. Don't you see this happening? You want to yell at those in power. You, you can't just let that go. You should do something about this. I mean, how much more does God see the sin and the wickedness and the unrighteousness? How much more does God see that, that evil has no mercy, evil has no grace? And, and we're in a war whether we want to admit it or not. And, and like Israel, listen, we need a warrior God. We need someone to defend righteousness, to, to defend against injustice. We need someone who doesn't just turn their back to all of this and just look the other way when there's suffering going on. And so in this account here, what do we have? We have the evil of the world. We have the, the, the seed of the serpent pursuing God's people. In fact, you, you see what he, he says, this, this warrior God saving his people. It says this in verse nine of chapter 15. It says, the enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Don't you feel that sometimes? That, that evil and sin and temptation and suffering, it's like it's they're pursuing after you. And, and here's what Satan says. Satan says, listen, I don't want a bit of you, man. I want all of you pursuing you, breathing down your neck, saying, you're mine. I own you. I'm not letting that past go. I'm not letting this temptation go. I'm not stopping this suffering you're in. But then God steps in in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. I mean, God throws them into the sea. 
our, our warrior God, strong enough to win the war, engaged enough to step in to help his people. I mean, you got to think what's going on here. If you remember back to where we started in this series in Exodus, what, what happened when Pharaoh looked look and, and he saw the people of Israel growing in number. So he had a solution to take care of that. And, and it was population control. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill every single baby boy under the age of two. I'm just going to throw them into the Nile. Now here's the thing. I, I'm a dad. If, if one of my girls, when she was, Two and under, if somebody was picking them up and throwing them into a river to drown and die, as a father, I would not just stand back. I would want justice. So, so in that moment where there's sin and injustice, like, like in that moment, don't, don't give me a, a wimpy Jesus who kind of just floats around in a white robe and a blue sash and a, and a sweet flow. That, that's not the Jesus I want. Man, I, I need a warrior God who can step in and save a warrior God who can bring justice, a God who is, as Moses says, is my strength, my song, my salvation. This is sung by a group of people who knew they were hopeless and helpless, and they just saw this warrior God step in with divine judgment to their oppressor and set them completely free. And so they're singing to God because why? They know, God, you have the strength. You've secured our salvation. And, and I love, they don't just talk in the past tense of you did this for us. In fact, look at verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says this, the, the peoples have heard. Talking present tense now, like right now, the peoples have heard. Who heard? They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. So they're, they're about to travel through these other foreign lands. They're saying, man, these people, it's not that they had Twitter and Instagram, like these people heard about this. God is at work sending out word that people know this is their mighty warrior God. Goes on now, the chiefs of Edom dis, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. God, you're taking care of us as we go, is what they're singing. Do you see what this worship is doing for them? It's, it's reorienting their hearts. This was a people who, who just moments ago looked and saw Pharaoh coming after them. They could not take their eyes off of Pharaoh. Now in worship, they're reorienting their hearts to truth. God, I'm helpless, but you're a warrior. You're a warrior who has saved. You're a warrior who will save. I mean, think about us today. Think about the enemies that we face where we need a warrior. I mean, biblically, we have, we have three main enemies, biblically. The first one we have is this. We have the enemy of death. In 1 Corinthians 15 25 to 26 says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Talking about Christ, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We're powerless against death. And so, so we praise a God who can destroy death. That by his, his righteous wrath, by his eternal and gracious love, that he destroys death. And, and we know he can destroy death. Why? Because we see here in Exodus, we, we know he can do it because he destroyed death at the resurrection. 
In fact, we know it so well. Paul would say in the same passage a few verses later, Paul says this in verses 55 to 57. He says, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul's saying because of the cross and the resurrection, the, the sting of death is gone. Our warrior God defeated death. Here's our second enemy. First is death. The second enemy is the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 says it this way. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Like we, we crave to do what's right. We, we want to follow after Christ and, and what's good, but, but we don't have the power to do it. And so we need to walk by the spirit so that God can do this work where he destroys the flesh. The Lord needs to be our strength in this. As we, as we battle temptation and sin, it's the, the Lord is our strength. And, and here's again where, where worship is so good for fighting sin. I mean, you, you worship and you give praise that, that your sinful self, it was crucified with Christ. And, and now we're united with Christ in his death so, so that his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And we sing that. We orient our hearts. We pray that. We, we orient our actions to the truth that, you know what? My old self is dead. I'm not walking that way anymore. I'm going to live in the freedom I have in the spirit, by the spirit. I've been saved. So, so I'm not listening to the, to the bullying lies that, that say, you're mine. I'm coming after you. No, no, I don't think so. I'm going to step in behind the cross of Christ. I'm going to join with this warrior savior that I've got to, to put my sin to death. And why would I do that? Why would I want to battle with Christ and by his power, by the spirit, fight against sin? Because I recognize that that same enemy put my best friend to death. We don't want to make friends with sin that, that put Christ on the cross. We want to hate our sin. We want to be killing our sin. We want to live as those who have been, been bought with a price to live a new life. We've been brought from death to life. Our life now given fully to God. As Jesus battles our flesh. Here's, here's the last enemy we have, the great enemy of the devil. Ephesians 6 says this, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. It's God doing the work. He's our champion. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're, we're, we're battling Satan, but here's the thing. Satan is smarter than you. Satan is stronger than you. You and I are no match for Satan. But the good news is this, we have someone who stands in our place. We have someone else who is our strength. We have someone else who fights for us. In fact, back in Exodus, I, I love how verse 11 and 12, Moses says it this way. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. 
I mean, all of this that, that, we're, that Moses is saying about the, the whole event of them walking through the Red Sea on dry land and then God closing it up to destroy the enemy. All of this, a prequel. A prequel to what was coming in Christ. The greatest day in history. All of this pointing to Christ where our warrior king would crush Satan and sin and ourself on the cross and the resurrection. All of this pointing to that day when he returns as our warrior king to once and for all. Put an end not just to the power of sin and death and Satan, but put an end to them for good. Even the presence of them. Now, I believe that one of the reasons we don't celebrate the ferocious warrior God that we have is because we don't recognize how helpless we are against these enemies. We're absolutely helpless against death. We're absolutely helpless against the flesh. Absolutely helpless against Satan. And so it's, it's people like that. It's people like you and I who need a God to come and fight on our behalf. It, it's people like us who then celebrate him as the warrior God. You're the God of our strength. The song goes on in Exodus 15. It says this in verse 13. It says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength, to your holy abode. So you're, you're bringing them home. Here's our second, our last point this morning. It's this. God completely saves us because of his steadfast love. I don't know if you underline your Bible, but if you do, man, I would underline that word, steadfast love. God's people are redeemed. The warrior has bought back his people. We were enslaved in sin. His people of Israel enslaved in Egypt that he buys them back. And we know the price that he bought us back with was Christ. That Jesus gives himself as a ransom for us to be bought, to be redeemed. That's what redeemed means. That we've now been purchased back and now are God's treasure. How does it happen? And, and listen, the Israelites understand this to such a rich depth here. It's only because of that word there, God's steadfast love. What, what does that, that mean, his steadfast love? That, that, that means a love, a grace that's rooted in his covenant promise. This is not just a feeling of love. This is God saying, no, no, I'm placing this love on you because of my promise over you. I love how Matt Pop says it in his book, Look and Live. Let me say this. He says this about, about worship and this idea of God's steadfast love about the gospel. He says, worship is war. The call is to behold the Son of God, not merely to just look at him, to gaze deep into the gospel, not merely pray some prayer and then move on. No, we must linger. What are we lingering on? Where are we staying? What are we gazing on? What are we looking on to live? We're looking here on God's steadfast love. A God who is perfect and complete in himself. A God that does not need us, is not deficient without us, yet this God chooses to love us. I mean, think about how, how powerful this is. They're standing on the shores of, of the, the Red Sea, seeing what God's wrath does. This warrior God who righteously hates sin, who is holy and perfect, and yet the same God chooses to love us with this 
covenantal love. This never stopping, never giving up, never ending kind of love. Uh, A love that he demonstrated to Abraham when he called him and said, listen, I'm going to love you unconditionally and I'm not going to stop loving you because you don't love me well. I'm not going to stop loving you because based on what you do, I'm not going to love you based on what you bring to the table. It's all based on my promise, God said. It's all based on my my name, God says. And now God brings the Israelites out. They see his, his steadfast love and it brings them to this place of unhindered worship. Because in that moment, the gospel is so clear to them. They see themselves so clearly. They see God so clearly. You see, because just a chapter earlier, the Israelites wanted nothing to do with God. The Israelites were saying, you're you're a God who doesn't care. Man, we don't want to follow you. We want to go back to Egypt. We want nothing to do with you. And they're, they're breaking their promise to love God. But God has a steadfast love. A covenantal love. A love based on his grace. And they see this love displayed and, and you can see how it changes them. You can, you can see how even their worship changes. In fact, go back up to verse two. See verse two there, it says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. You, you see what's going on here? How many times do you see the word my? It's, it's the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. This has become such a personal song for them. And it's huge. Because leading up to this chapter, 16 times in the book of Exodus, God is described by them as the God of their fathers. Which which means they they knew the God of the stories that they heard. A, A God who worked on behalf of people they'd never met. Generations earlier. And yeah, I've heard that this God worked in power like 500 years ago, but now through their horrible suffering they've been through and they've now been placed in a position where they now have seen God's mighty power and his steadfast love. Until you see yourself in this place where you see this love on display for you, until you grasp the truth of the gospel in your own life, idea that that I'm more sinful than I'd ever admit, man. I'm just as sinful as those Egyptians that God just poured his wrath out on. But I also see his steadfast love poured out on me. I mean, until you grasp the gospel deep in your heart and gaze at that, at his steadfast love, you're just going to go through the motions of a distant faith. It's the the God of my fathers. It's the God of, of somebody else. But when the gospel drops in your heart, like really drops in your heart, you begin to sing your own song. Like nothing I've done is too much for him to love me. That he, he bought my forgiveness. He's my warrior. He, he defeats the enemy and that tries to attack me. He's, he's mine. He's my salvation. And listen, it's it's here where the heartaches and struggles of life can be used by God in a way to fuel our worship. To remind us that God doesn't need us to be strong. But to remember that he's our strength. And so, so by his grace, God will at times put us up against a Red Sea. 
Every now and again, why? Why? For us to see his power and his love on display. And we may hate these hard times, but I'm telling you, it's in those situations that by God's grace, you're shown the reality of sin. You're shown the reality of how helpless we are. So listen, in this season where, where, where things are a little more difficult right now and, and maybe your parenting has been a lot harder and it seems to fall short, do you come to that place to say, thank you, Jesus, that you love my kids in a way that's so much greater than I even love them? And God, you're going to take my broken attempts to, to pour gospel into my kids and you're going to do so much more. And God, in this moment of me failing as a parent, you're revealing even an opportunity for me to, to show my kids the gospel, to say, listen, yeah, mom and dad, you know, we need Jesus too. When struggles come in and, and fear shows up, you can say, thank you, God, for showing me how weak I actually am that you're the mighty warrior. You're the one who fights my battles. You're the one who has tomorrow in your hands. I, mean, I love that they, they don't just, just sing about today. They don't just sing about the journey that they're on. Look at verse 17 and 18. They take this to eternity. They say this, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, where God abides, where God lives. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. He's saying, God, you're bringing us home. I just heard a story from a pastor who was walking with a family who, who was a, a mom and two daughters. And the, the, the dad, the father, just abandoned the family. Just walked out on them wanted nothing to do with them, disappeared, left them destitute with nothing. And he said he was, he was standing behind this family in a worship service. And while they're singing, the, the mom has the hands of both her daughters in her hands and all of them raised arms together, singing out loud about what? They're singing a worship song that was talking about our heavenly father is a good, perfect heavenly father. They're, they're worshiping in that moment because in that moment, as they see in the, on, on the earthly place they're at, they had a father who abandoned them, a father who did not care for them, but they're able to now worship and say, God, you're the father who never forsakes. You never abandon. And they're experiencing God in that moment of worship, that sacrifice of worship. What are they doing? They're, they're taking the wreckage of sin and suffering. They're reorienting their hearts in that moment and seeing God in a new way. I mean, worship is this gift of God's grace. It's, it's there for our joy. God doesn't need our songs for him to move. It's, it's not like God has bad days and he's like, oh man, thank you guys. Like I so needed you to sing that to me. Now he's given us songs, he's given us worship so that our hearts can come alive, so that we can be again reoriented to the truth. I mean, he's such a good God. In worship, God gets what, what is his due. We should worship him as God. But at the same time, he's upholding our hearts with it. And there's a reason why we're so fired up about worship here at Harvest. 
there's a reason why worship is a key value of our church. We're lifting high the name of Jesus in worship. We hold that as an important part of what we do. We're going to put a focus and an energy into creating a time for us to worship together, to sing loudly together. Not boring, not going through the motions, not just rope, but like window rattling, earth shaking, life changes, voices lifted loudly, all in kind of worship. Why is that? It's not because we love the way music just sounds or it's just the hip thing for a church to be about nowadays. No, no, it's because it's, it's through worship that we fight our battles. It's through worship we preach the truth to our souls. When you're singing songs like the stone has been rolled away, we're preaching to our soul. When we're singing a song that you are a perfect father, we, we sing a song, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. When you sing those words, you're preaching truth to your own heart. Because listen, listen, when we gather together to worship on a Sunday morning, typically, now we're separate, but we would gather together. Why is that so important? And maybe you feel the pangs of that right now as you're longing for that. Why, why would you do that? Because listen, for six days out of the week, for six days, your thoughts, your circumstances, other people, they're drawing your gaze somewhere else. But by God's grace, we come together and together point each other through worship to be reminded that none of that that I've been gazing at, none of that trying to draw me back, none of that coming after me saying you're mine. And that's not true. This is true. Who I worship is true. What he says about me is true. And in worship, you're preaching the truth, the gospel to your heart. That's what worship is. Preaching to ourselves that, God, you're in control. After a week has convinced me so clearly that, that I'm uh, trying to tell me that I'm the one in control. Uh, a week that tried to convince me so much that, that this world is in control. I can come to worship, reorient my heart to say, no, God, you're the one who's in control. And so by worshiping, we're, we're preaching to ourselves that Satan does not win. We're, we're preaching to ourselves the steadfast love of God that when I feel lost, when I feel unworthy, I'm preaching the steadfast love of God to myself as I worship. When we worship, we're preaching to ourselves that surrender is the way to joy. As we worship, we, we reorient our hearts to eternity where, where the trial of today no longer has the same weight. To, it does not have the victory that, that sin and Satan and self, they're defeated. In fact, let me close with this. One of my favorite stories in scripture is, is in 2 Chronicles when, when King Jehoshaphat, he's surrounded by these armies. He's done for, he's outmanned. He's completely hopeless and totally helpless in that moment. And so he prays his prayer in 2 Chronicles 20 where he says, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And, and his heart now oriented God, not looking at his circumstances, saying, God, I'm looking to you. And God responds to that prayer. And he says, fear not, the battle is mine. When God says that, Jehoshaphat falls down on his face in worship. All of Jerusalem falls down in worship. And while the people are on their face worshiping this holy God, a group of people stand up. And they start to stand and sing praises with this loud voice. And, and the group that stands up, you read it in 2 Chronicles 20, they're actually the worship leaders of Israel. And here's where it gets crazy. The next day they go out into battle. 
And on the front lines of battle, it's not the, the, the battle-hardened, strong soldiers going out in front. You know who they send out? They send out those very worship leaders. They move out and guess what they sing as they go out? As they lead in worship, they sing this, give thanks to the Lord for what? For his steadfast love endures forever. They, they worship the God of power and the God of promise and the God of grace. And what happens, they go out worshiping the enemies confused and defeated. They fight with worship. Now John Piper says it this way. He says, spiritual warfare should be carried out with singing. You see Paul and Silas, right? They, they get thrown in jail in the New Testament. They're beaten with rods, stripped naked, thrown, it says, into the, to the, to the deepest inner jail. That's, that's the lowest part of the, this pit they would call jail. It's a horrible place to be. And what do they do? In the midst of that suffering, what are they doing? They move forward in that battle by singing. It says in scripture that they worshiped. Worship is this weapon of spiritual warfare. Paul and Silas, they, they learned what Jehoshaphat had learned, that the, their hearts are reoriented. And when the, that happens as they worship, listen, the enemy is confused by the songs of God's people. This song that Moses sings, you know that we're actually going to sing this song. In fact, it's, it's recorded again in Revelation chapter 15. That at the end... At the end, we gather to sing this song again, the song of Moses. But, but this time, not by the tumultuous Red Sea, not by the chaos of that sea, but singing this by the glassy sea. The song of Moses, and it says, and the song of the Lamb. A song of God's justice and his steadfast love. Now, let me ask you this. What are you singing about these days? What's your heart's anthem? Where does your heart turn? Where are you looking? What are you worshiping? Let's move forward in this battle in worship where we reorient our hearts to the character and the promises of God, to the truth of the gospel, where we sing about the Red Sea, we sing about the Glassy Sea, we sing about God's justice, we sing about his holiness, we sing about his righteousness, we sing about his power and his might and his salvation, we sing about the cross and the empty tomb, where we sing now, we sing on Sundays, we sing during the week. I mean, I would say this, at this time when we're worshiping at home, man, bust out and sing. Don't just sit there, don't just Stand there, but say, no, we're singing. As awkward as it is, we're busting out in worship. Why? To reorient our hearts. Listen, listen. As a church, as Christ followers, let's never stop worshiping. Never stop singing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I so thank you for this text. God, I'm, I'm so hungry and got to have such a deep desire that we would be a people who worship with such zeal, that we would be so deeply rooted in, in rejoicing in your strength and in, in your might and your power, that we'd be so blown away that you step in, that you take the initiative in salvation, that we'd be stunned by your glory. We'd be floored by your eternal victory. God, that you would reorient our hearts to see your power, to see your steadfast love. That we'd rest securely knowing that our future is in your hands. 
Lord God, I thank you and I praise you that you are our strength. You are our song. You are our salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.